Well, hello and welcome to H2 Tech Talk, the podcast series from H2 Tech, the hydrogen technology journal from Gulf Energy Information. I'm Adrienne Bloom, Editor-in-Chief of H2 Tech and your host for H2 Tech Talk. This week, we'll be talking with Andy Steinhubel, Vice Chair of the Board for the Center for Houston's Future. Before we get started with the discussion, I'd like to remind you to share and subscribe to the H2 Tech Talk podcast for more expert discussions on technology and trends in the hydrogen sector. It's easy to do. Just click the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts or Blueberry. So uh, before we get started, I'd like to invite Andy to briefly describe um, his role on the Center for uh, Houston's Future and, and kind of tell us a little bit about what the center does. Sure, Adrian, and pleasure to be with you today. The uh, Center for Houston's Future is an affiliate of the Greater Houston Partnership, effectively the Houston Chamber of Commerce representing all major enterprises in the Greater Houston area. And we serve effectively as the long range uh, planning arm of, of the partnership and look at uh, long-term business infrastructure and demographic trends and catalyze dialogues with relevant parties to, to work towards a vision for the improvement of Houston. And um, aspects of that recently have included looking at Houston's future economic viability in light of uh, changes and, and pressures on the oil and gas industry. And that uh, teed up the possibility of, of a low carbon era and leadership in the low carbon era. And that then uh, set up the recent projects on hydrogen, CCUS, uh, a future renewables driven grid and circular plastics. So the center has an agenda that is very centric to a low carbon future and Houston's role in the low carbon future. Okay, great. Thank you for that. Uh, very interesting work indeed. All right, so um, kind of launching into some questions uh, that I'm, I'm curious about, and I know that um, some of these you had discussed in the article that you wrote for us in the second quarter issue of H2 Tech. It's a great article, by the way, you should check it out. Um, so from a technical point of view, uh, what do you think are the greatest opportunities and challenges for Texas in the energy transition? Um, and how are those similar or different to the opportunities and challenges that you see in the wider U.S. energy industry? It's great, great lead off question. So maybe I'll pick up the second part, and come back to the first part, because when I think of Texas and the similarities and differences of Texas, uh, I have a hard time restraining my optimism around the potential for a low carbon future. And I link that to two major levers in decarbonization, electrification, and then hydrogen for hard to abate areas that uh, exceed the uh, economics and reach of batteries and electricity for a variety of reasons. So you have two major uh, levers. And um, if I go back to the electrification, and electrification particularly underpinned by clean renewable energy, Texas is the number one wind state in, in the country. Uh, we are fast approaching being the number two solar state. So we are well poised to have uh, a very clean grid. And then associated with the preponderance of wind and solar, we have a lot of uh, low cost hours when there's a mismatch between the supply of, of wind or solar energy and demand on the grid. 
And that's advantageous to produce green hydrogen because there's a, a high power consumption component, 60 to 70% of the cost of green hydrogen production is the cost of power. So it's a huge advantage to have uh, the number of off-peak hours that are available. And, and then uh, also from a green hydrogen standpoint, once a molecule of hydrogen is made, it's indifferent of, of where it came from. And so any green hydrogen can benefit from the vast amount of infrastructure on hydrogen that exists today. So moving to another form of hydrogen, uh, blue hydrogen, which comes from starting with gray, uh, which is made from uh, methane, splitting methane molecules into hydrogen, releasing the carbon. Uh, moving to blue, that requires a capture of the carbon, but that gray system uh, we make in Houston a third of the production in the U.S. Uh, we've got 900 miles of pipelines to move that hydrogen around, which is preeminent globally. Uh, we have very unique salt cavern storage located uh, adjacent to all that, which sits on top of a port and sits on a number of pipeline uh, rights away so that hydrogen could be moved a lot of places across the country and beyond. So we've got immense advantages in uh, gray and potentially blue, coupling it with uh, CCUS where we have uh, uh, transportation assets as well as reservoirs that could be used to store use CO2 and enhance oil recovery. So lots on the table on hydrogen, particularly that gray system and potentially blue system mm -hmm. that um, are huge advantages. The second big advantage in Texas is uh, people and capabilities, the engineering know-how, the technical know-how, the, the major project know-how, regulatory, commercial, that have uh, decades and decades of experience putting together the projects needed to deliver abundant energy cost-effectively and, and safely. And all those skills are highly relevant to moving the energy system to a, a cleaner, uh, more decarbonized state. So back to your challenges and, and opportunities, I, I think we have um, the rights, if you will, in Greater Houston to, to lead in the decarbonization area. I think it's, it's primarily a matter of, of will, uh, will among the relevant government entities uh, within Texas federally, will among the companies to work together to shape the policies to activate those electrification, further electrification and hydrogen opportunities, and then put together the public-private coalitions um, of participants across the value chain to make them happen, like we've seen in California, mm -hmm. uh, who's gone quite a ways in electric vehicles and in uh, hydrogen uh, transportation, heavy transportation. We've seen a lot of progress in Europe, and, and what they have in common is, is the regulatory and incentive framework to make it happen and the participation among the leading companies and, and government entities to support it. Mm -hmm. Great, so you just described a lot of things that Texas, advantages that Texas has um, for making, uh, making you know, this, this, uh, the hydrogen industry a reality. So what infrastructure or technologies do you think will be needed additionally to transform Texas into a major hydrogen hub? Um, and also what sectors do you see hydrogen as having the most promising applications in this region? 
Uh, well, again, going back to some of the uh, inherent advantages or significant advantages in the greater Texas area is gray hydrogen is a, is a well, well proven technology and, and CCUS is as well. There's been CCUS uh, at scale in Norway going back to uh, 1996, I believe, that is separating CO2 from a natural gas reservoir and, and storing it in, uh, in, in other reservoirs and uh, many, many projects that have uh, used CO2 and enhanced oil recovery. So the transportation and storage and usage piece is, is very, very mature. There may be some gains on the capture piece. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're in a post-combustion, if you're, if you're creating CO2 as a result of burning or in a process you've got the issue of capturing it that's called post-combustion. And typically there's an amine system used there that absorbs the CO2 and then to release it back out, it takes energy. And so there's been some gains on that. Exxon's made some recent announcements on a more energy efficient uh, amine approach. And then the other thing you can do is change the process. So um, instead of steam methane reformation, a lot of new blue hydrogen projects that would use natural gas as a feedstock or using a process called autothermal reforming, which is a one-step versus a two-step reaction process. And that concentrates the CO2 stream and makes it more capturable. So that process can achieve uh, decarbonization levels upwards of 95%. So there is some gain on the blue, but it, it's largely well down the road and, and can be put into action very quickly, which is important if we think about a 2030 impact scenario versus a 2050. If we go to green, uh, electrolysis uh, certainly is a demonstrated and, and proven technology, if you will, but the economics of electrolysis and, and the scale of hydrogen produced through that method are uh, well behind where gray slash blue hydrogen are. So there's a lot of R&D that's mm -hmm. going into more efficient electrolyzers, uh, better anode cathode chemistry, uh, the ability to use salt water, which Stanford has announced some recent advances in, manufacturing scale and uh, modularization, more cost effectiveness there. So there's a long, longer way to go to make uh, green hydrogen efficient in a number of technology areas that there's a lot of effort being put into. So optimistic it'll get there, but it's on a, on a different time scale in terms of relative economics and relative ability to deliver uh, volumes at market scale than is the case in blue. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, you know, speaking of blue hydrogen projects um, in the Gulf Coast region, so you know, kind of looking at the um, the speed at which these these will be installed um, at at existing gray hydrogen uh, you know production um, uh, plants, and then also the cost of doing that. Um, you know, what do what do you see about what do you think about the timing of such project decisions or or the um, the the cost of of them? Like, do you, you know what what's the motivating factors here? You know, how easy is this? Yeah, as you recall, perhaps from the uh, the paper you referenced and the um, the talk at your conference, it's kind of where are the priorities and where are we closest to market economics? So as we went through 
potential applications of hydrogen. Keep in mind, there's an abundance of hydrogen being used today in refining and petrochemicals. But uh, hydrogen, clean hydrogen displacing existing hydrogen uses, you really need to think about what it's displacing and what are the relative economics of what it's displacing and then how much more infrastructure investment is needed to uh, put a clean hydrogen solution in place versus the existing solution. So yeah. if you put those lenses on it, uh, a lot of uh, studies, including ours, came out with heavy transportation because clean hydrogen is competing against diesel, which is relatively expensive, relatively emissions intensive, and it takes fairly limited infrastructure to um, develop the refueling chains necessary to support, say, hydrogen trucks. So we were able to get at scale, leveraging off the port region in Houston uh, very quickly. I think by 2030, we were able to break even with, uh, with diesel economics, including the infrastructure. You've got to get over the initial investment hump, but by the time you get to 2030, you're able to compete with diesel. If I'm trying to go in and displace um, natural gas, you know, which again in Texas is fairly low cost, that's difficult. Or if I try to go into passenger vehicles where batteries and electrification are very competitive, very difficult. So, you know, my, my short answer to your question is it depends, of course, but you can quite quickly get to the production of blue hydrogen. It may take more than the 45Q uh, incentive that's in place today, which is $50 outside of enhanced oil recovery, 35. Numbers we've been seeing suggest it needs to be upwards of 80 to 100. And that'll get the gray hydrogen to blue. And then where do you take that blue? We think trucking is a good place to do it mm -hmm. for the reasons I mentioned. It's competing with an alternative solution uh, that hydrogen compete with, clean hydrogen compete with successfully and takes limited new infrastructure to get there. If I want to penetrate other markets, I'm going to have to raise the incentives or the uh, carbon fee or penalty in order to penetrate other applications, of which there are many, steel, mm -hmm. cement, process heat, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Certainly many applications. So kind of looking toward the future with green hydrogen projects, um, do you foresee any issues with using renewable power or renewable energy to power hydrogen production projects um, due to the intermittent nature of renewable power? Well, I'm glad you used the word intermittent because in, in Texas recently, renewables have, uh, have uh, had, I think, unjustifiably a bit of a bad rap coming out of the recent freeze and the uh, power outages. Uh, which uh, I think the facts are coming out and are suggesting that the, that impacted uh, all sources of generation. And we just don't have a uh, what's known as a capacity market in Texas and um, our assets weren't winterized nor do we have enough backup assets to uh, uh, mitigate a situation like that. But intermittency is in fact inherent in, in wind and solar power. And there've been numerous studies done on the impacts on the grid of increasing proportions of, of wind and solar. And Texas is at a point now with the level of penetration that uh, battery energy storage has a, has a significant role uh, to balance uh, fluctuating currency, 
stabilize the grid, uh, can, can serve um, uh, in some ways as peaking capacity for short periods of time. But, but the more you put renewables on the grid, the more you're going to have this issue of mismatching production versus demand. And say in a scenario where wind doesn't blow for a few days, or you've got overcast situations and solar uh, viability is lower, uh, the grid has to be prepared for that. And when you get to high levels of renewable, you're going to need other forms of storage that can go beyond what batteries can do. And that's where long duration storage, uh, among which hydrogen would be a good candidate, uh, could be a solution and, and, and a probably a particularly good solution in the sense that, as I mentioned earlier, you can synergize the production of hydrogen with when cost of renewable power is low, bank that hydrogen, if you will, and then use it either through a fuel cell or burn it in a uh, gas fire generation plant that's retrofitted to take hydrogen, turbines can take hydrogen uh, to use when, um, um, when a peak supply is needed. Mm -hmm. okay. So I think the promise of uh, green hydrogen and the synergies between renewables and, and green hydrogen are, are a plus. Interesting, okay, thank you. Um, so, my last question for you is that I know you're teaching some micro-credential courses on hydrogen at the University of Houston um, as part of the university's sustainable energy program. And so That's I'm good. just curious, how do you hope to inspire future engineers to tackle the challenges of the so-called energy trilemma and get excited about sustainable energy development and having a career in that? Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you asked about that. Um, you know, I, we did a lot of the prior work in collaboration with the University of Houston and their energy program. And the University of Houston uh, perceived a significant demand for hydrogen education and put a lot of effort uh, really in short order to get a class launched because it's already underway. And so they wanted to do it over the summer window. And um, I've got statistics right off the press here for you. There were 31 uh, students who signed up and they're from all walks of degree backgrounds, engineering, technical, wow. um, psychology majors, uh, mm -hmm. data analytics, uh, most of them in petrochemicals, probably mm -hmm. about a third of them in petrochemicals. And then the experience range is interesting too. It's about a third, a third, a third, less than 10 years industry experience, 10 to 20 and over 20, a lot of over 20. Wow. Okay. So uh, the interest has been uh, substantial. And then um, the center is in parallel doing three hydrogen projects over the summer. And we put out a remit for interns and, and these would be students, either undergraduate or graduate students. And uh, we, were, we were significantly oversubscribed. So we have six interns uh, who've eagerly jumped in and, and frankly, we're having a hard time keeping up with them. So <laughs> I, I, I go back to your, your trilemma, and, you know, and earlier I mentioned that the industry has a longstanding capability and drive to uh, develop um, significant quantities you know, at scale volumes cost-effectively and safely. And I think increasingly the values of doing all of the above sustainably and equitably uh, are equally embraced. So 
you know, I, I have an engineering background. I, I started uh, out of Purdue with a chemical engineering degree. And what drove me to engineering was optimization and the opportunities mm-hmm. to optimize. And energy has an abundant uh, set of optimization equations. So I would say opportunities. I would say that uh, adding that the other two planks, if you will, of, of the trilemma stool just further enhance that optimization opportunity. And I think people are voting with their feet from from all walks and experience levels uh, to dive in. So uh, we we didn't really have time to market the course. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I expect that this is, you know, we'll have bigger numbers next time around. There's an executive education class in the fall, which uh, will probably equal or exceed this. So I I think there's a lot of interest, which is which is terrific Mm -hmm. to see. That's fantastic. That sounds like a great opportunity for the students to uh, to, you know, not, not only students that are already familiar, have a familiar background in this, but, you know, students from um, maybe slightly different walks that are interested in, you know, learning more about this side of the of, uh, you know, the field. So very interesting and uh, good luck. Yeah, with that's you. a good observation. I, I think you're right. I think people are looking at this as, you know, career move possibility, uh, Definitely. just seeing the potential out there. Yeah, definitely, and and good luck with uh, with teaching the courses. I'm I'm sure you'll be. Uh, Thank you. That's a new trick, but uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I'm sure you'll be a fantastic lecturer. So, um, Andy, I want to thank you for sharing your expert insights with the H2 Tech audience. And um, I would also like to remind the audience that you can read Andy's paper um, that he published with us in the second quarter issue of H2 Tech. You can also still watch his presentation that he gave at our H2 Tech Solutions Conference. You just need to visit www.h2-techsolutions.com. And from there, you can register for all the on-demand presentation sessions. And so you could, you'll be able to see Andy's um, presentation that he gave from that our conference in May. So um, again, uh, if you enjoyed this episode of H2 Tech Talk, please remember to share and subscribe to the H2 Tech Talk podcast on Apple Podcasts or Blueberry. Thanks so much. And we'll talk to you again next week.